And uh, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here again. I love sharing the Word of God here. And, and I always feel like sometimes I have to give this introduction, but now I guess when we're getting in seven months that I've been attending here, I really don't need to introduce myself anymore. So it's great to be here. And as Jordan mentioned, um, kind of alluded to it last week, we've talked a lot about it this week already, that we're entering a new sermon series on prayer. Um, so what we're going to have now is we're going to have a four-week sermon series on prayer. And, and so it's something that I think is going to be very exciting because we get to talk about what it means to communicate with God and what it means to connect with God in prayer. And so we're going to be looking at different facets of prayer. But one of the things that I find very um, fun about this sermon series that you're going to find out is that we're doing four weeks of prayer, but each one of the pastors at Crosswinds is going to be taking a week. So pastors Kurt, uh, Jordan, Andy, and I will each be taking a week and uh, sharing a rotation at the pulpit. So over the next four weeks, you're going to be able to listen to each one of us. Um, we did give Chris a break. Uh, if you know, Pastor Chris just joined us. Um, and so since he's only been with us a couple of weeks, we gave him a break from this one, but we'll get him involved next time. And so it's, it's really going to be fun to see how each one of us um, bring a little different style um, to the pulpit. And that's what I find fascinating is that as pastors, each one of us are a little bit different in how we prepare for sermons and how we preach for sermons. And, and a lot of times, we're influenced by people that we've been instructed by. You know, we model those that have mentored us or those who have taught us or those that we have studied under. And so we'll eventually come up with our own style but a lot of times our structure and our delivery is largely influenced by those that we admire. And, and this really goes for, you know, really every aspect in life. You know, if you're at work, you may uh, mimic those that you have learned from at work. Or like as parents, you know, you learn from uh, parents that have already raised children and you take instruction from them. And many aspects in life, we will you know, learn habits and routines from other people that we admire, and so we will take their instruction. And, but the thing about that is that we have to be willing to take the instruction that's out there. Um, you know, my, my dad used to tell me all the time, and I'm sure my family's going to say they heard this a thousand times, fools will learn from their own mistakes, ignorant people learn from the mistakes of others. And so what my dad was basically telling me that ignorance by definition is a lack of knowledge. And so what he was always telling me my whole entire life is you're better off learning from other people and taking instructions than being a fool and stumbling down your own path. And so it goes right into a proverb, Proverb 1.7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge where fools despise wisdom and instruction. So even scripture tells us that fools will despise the wisdom and instructions of other people. So having a teachable spirit is really a redeeming quality in God's people. And so now when we start putting that now into the Christian realm, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm very envious of, you know, the disciples because they really had a front row ticket to the greatest teacher that the world had ever known. You know, they got to learn and gain wisdom and they got to model one of the greatest people to ever walk the face of this earth. And so as we're getting into this instruction on prayer, we're getting into our sermon series on prayer, this morning we're going to talk about what does it mean to pray or how, was, how, uh, how are we instructed to pray. And so the disciples, when they wanted to know more about prayer, they went straight to Jesus Christ. And so right there in our verse this morning, Luke 1, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
And so they had personally witnessed this incredible relationship that Jesus had with, the, with God and his intense prayer life that he had and maintained in communicating with his Father. And they also knew that the power of his ministry and the power of his time on earth was a direct reflection, reflection of the prayer time that he spent with his Father. And so when they wanted to know more about prayer and they wanted to be instructed about prayer, they went straight to Jesus Christ and asked him, how should we pray? And so what we find in Scripture is that Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer. That was the model of prayer for them to follow. And so, you know, just like the disciples, many times, you know, we still today struggle with our prayer lives. You know, we struggle with... um, you know, what, what should we say? Uh, how do we go about it? When? You know, all those who, what, when, where, why type of questions we have when it comes to prayer. You know, because prayer is something that generally does not come naturally to us. We are a fallen race, and we live in this fallen world, and we will put stuff that is prioritized over our prayer life. And so we need to be very purposeful about spending time with God in prayer. It takes a lot of focus. It takes effort. It takes discipline. And so when we really struggle with what does prayer look like? You know, that seems like a lot of questions that we get a lot of times is, well, I want to pray, but where do I start? Um, How do I go about it? Or, you know, people get such anxiety when they're with other people and they're praying corporately because they're not sure how to pray. And so what we forget to realize is that the Lord's prayer was given to us as a model of our prayers as well. And so this morning, we're going to dig into Luke. If you want to turn to Luke with me this morning, Luke 11, Luke chapter 11, and we're going to go just verses 1 through 4. And so what we have in front of us right here is Jesus' instructions on how we are to pray. And so we're going to look at what this is telling us and how can we better connect with God. So uh, we'll start at Luke 11, verse 1. So if you want to follow along with me as I read from the Word of God says the Lord's Prayer. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So as you probably immediately noticed, if you've been around the church setting for a long time, Luke's version is a little bit shorter than the common version that we often know from Matthew. And so when we think about this, we look at this, and as I'm reading, I'm sure there's probably at least one person, you don't have to raise your hands, but somebody out here probably thought, This is a little short, and there's a few words that are missing. We're skipping over some stuff. And so this is the exact thought this morning that we're going to attack right away because it's a common pitfall we fall into because the Lord's Prayer was not given to us just to recite in church. The Lord's Prayer was not given so that it would be a word-for-word regurgitation without understanding what it's telling us. The Lord's Prayer is not a static prayer that's impersonal or mindless or void of all emotion. And so I don't want us to fall into the trap 
where we learn the Lord's Prayer just because we feel like we say it, but we don't understand the content or even the instruction of what it's given to us. The Lord's Prayer is this great supplication that starts with petition for God's glory to be known throughout the world, and then it gives us provisions for seeking our own daily needs. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, let's not just say it from memory. Let's say it with thoughtfulness from our heart, with a focus of what is it really trying to tell us? Because Jesus designed this Lord's Prayer and gave it to the disciples and ultimately gave it to us so that we would have a model of a prayer to follow, not something that we just recite and not fully understand. Because without prayer and without the intimacy of prayer, we really struggle connecting with God. And so this is an aspect of prayer that is a staple to our Christian lives. We're told many places in Scripture to pray. It's, it's, a, it's everywhere in Scripture, and, and that's why this next four weeks is going to be great, because we're going to talk about it. But right away, 1 Thessalonians, we say, or it tells us to pray without ceasing. And the New Living Translation actually says, never stop praying. And then you turn to the book of Colossians, where it says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then the Philippians It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So we're instructed in Scripture to never stop praying, to be steadfast with thanksgiving, to be not anxious about anything, but make everything known to God. And so not only are we instructed, but this is God's very words. So we're instructed to pray, but God is essentially telling us, come to me every day, all the time, never stop praying, because he's asking us to pray with him all the time. Now this sounds incredible, right? I think everybody's like, yeah, that's great, you know? But how, you know, we still struggle with how do we go about this? What, what does this look like? You know, prayer sometimes can seem awkward, You know, you're sitting there. Does God really listen to everything? What do I say? What do I not say? What words do I use? You know, maybe you've struggled with that. Maybe you've matured past it. But I can assure you that almost every one of us at some point in time when we started praying has had that thought of prayer. It just, we stumble through it. We're we're just not quite sure where it's at. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer this morning. We're going to take it line by line. And what we're going to see is that not only does the Lord's Prayer give us the contents and a great instruction of what our prayer is, but it even, I, it even uh, puts in order the priority of where our prayer should be. So if you ever struggle with prayer, where to start, I'm going to encourage you, let's start at, at Luke 11, and let's just work through it line by line. So look once again at Luke 11, if you want to just pull right there, and we're going to unpack this because what we're going to see is, first, there's prayers for God's glory, and second, there's prayers for our needs. And so really the goal here this morning is turn the Lord's Prayer from maybe this rogue memorization that we just would say verbatim and we weren't quite sure even what it said. And what we're going to do is we're going to go into it and we're going to digest it and we're going to look at what the instruction is actually telling us. So our first part that we're going to see in verses 1 through 2, but really focusing on verse 2, is that Jesus instructs us first to bring our petitions for God's glory. So the first thing that we do is we bring our petitions for God's glory. So there's no mistaking that when we start our prayers, we start immediately with the adoration for God. We start our prayers 
with his glorification and his exaltation. It is the first priority that we start in our prayers. And what I love here is just one word that Jesus tells us to start with, and that's the word Father. You know, sometimes we say it so easily, Father, or even our Father. Father, we just, it just kind of rolls off the tongue because for some of us to think of God as Father is, is, is pretty easy to do. But let's not take for granted what this word is telling us. Because at this point in history, when Jesus instructs them to say, Father, this is a really revolutionary idea. It's, it's borderline radical for the Jewish of this time. Because Father was only used a few times in the Old Testament. And generally, when it was used, it was a term of more of an impersonal, um, not a relational aspect. It was a term of Father of Israel. And, and so the Jews had... Um, this really high reverence for God, and they feared him greatly, but they were very careful to, to respect this distance between them and God. And so this father title in the Old Testament was really um, the father of Israel. And so now you've got Jesus who's actually saying, no, we, we're using this to not only show his intimate connection with God, but he's telling us that we have this connection with God as well. And so Jesus would use this word, this Aramaic word, Abba. I'm sure you've heard it before, Abba. In the Greek, it's, it actually is pronounced as pater, and it translates very easily as father. But this is a much bigger word than just saying father, like saying this is his father, or I am a father. It's a much bigger word than that. It essentially means daddy or dearest father. So it's not just a title. What he's really saying here is that we're going to use this term father of a great affectionate term. It shows the sincerity and it shows this gentleness that we have with God. That God's not just a father. Because when I say it, father, it just sounds like this great, you know, this powerful term. But when I say daddy, it just kind of, you almost kind of melt, don't you? like that emotional melt, daddy, dearest father. And that's what we're talking about because when we refer to him as our dearest father, it just shows this intimate spiritual relationship that we have with him. And so when I say that, I just imagine God standing there, almost embracing us with him, sitting there and us looking at him and saying, dearest father, and he's saying, yes, bring your prayers to me. I'm listening. You know, this isn't a business relationship. This is a relationship that we have that is very intimate and very spiritual. And so the first thing he says is when you pray, when, whenever you pray, the first thing you want to do is address him in this very personal and intimate way. And that just opens the whole door to everything, doesn't it? When someone you know is listening to you, and they're directed to you, don't you just want to just start spilling everything? And so that's how we first engage him. And then we see the first of two petitions for God's glory. First of all, it tells us to pray uh, for his name to be hallowed. It, you know, we're not petitioning right away for our needs. Father, I need this, 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 this. The first thing we do is we say, hallowed be your name. We're asking for his name to be hallowed. Hallowed essentially means to be set apart as holy, considered holy, treated as holy. It means to be revered and honored. It's, it's really placing his name above all names. 
So while we come to him as our Abba, Father, dearest Father, we still have a component there where we have complete reverence for him at the same time. And so in the Jewish culture, the a person's name was very, very important to them. I mean, it, it designated who they were. It could identify them. Sometimes it really was an aspect of their character. And so if their name was that important and someone either forgot it or mispronounced it, this really was almost like offensive to them. And, and so I think about this as how do we react when people mispronounce our names? Or how do we react when someone forgets our name, especially someone you may have known for a while? And so when this is kind of a funny story because when we were in Haiti, our names were all pronounced completely different. Because in the Haitian language, the I becomes a long E sound and the A is pronounced differently. So Chris became Chris. And Michelle, my wife, became Michelle, and Gabriel was Gabrielle. And so we're always, when we first got there, we're always trying to correct them on how do you pronounce our names. But what's interesting is Elias' name was the exact opposite, because everybody in the United States wants to call him Elias, but his name's Elias. So we get down to Haiti, and everybody's pronouncing his name correctly. And so that's what was fun is that, you know, you should see the look on our boys' face as depending on which country we're in, we're constantly changing, you know, trying to correct everybody what our pronunciations were. And then, you know, I, I talk about Gabriel. Everybody knows my son Gabriel. He's not here this morning. His name is Gabriel. He was named Gabriel, not Gabe. And, you know, and it sounds funny, and I'm kind of saying it in jest, but when people call him Gabe, I really take offense to it because we named him specifically after the angel Gabriel in the Bible. And I've read many translations, and I've never seen in the Bible anywhere where we talked about the angel Gabe coming down and speaking. <laughs> and so when people say Gabe, I kind of take offense to it a little bit because that's not the name that I gave him. And so, like I said, I kind of use this as joking, but you see the emotions that we use in our names and how important they are. So now how much more important is it that we take God's name and we exalt it above all other names. That's what we're talking about. Hallowed be your name is an appeal to make God's name known and set apart from everything. We are asking him to demonstrate his glory in a way that people would revere his name above all else. All else. So when we say this, we're not saying that his name is holy. What we are doing is we're petitioning or we're asking him to make his name known throughout the world. So the first thing we do, hallowed be thy name, is we're declaring our desire that God's name, character, attributes be known and honored and glorified from all people. Because no worship, no adoration, no obedience can flow from a person's spirit if they have no regard for God's name. Furthermore, God's kingdom cannot come to those who do not have a high regard for his name. And so that pulls us into our second petition for God's glory, your kingdom come. Now this re refers to a request for the full realization of God's promise rule. It should be at the absolute centerpiece of our prayers. It's a petition for him to bring his kingdom to earth because this is a task that in no way can we accomplish ourselves. 
Because a kingdom, by definition, is a country, a state, a territory that is ruled by a king or a queen. It's, it's a designated boundary of authority where it's governed by a ruling party and their laws exist. So when we say, your kingdom come, when we pray that, we are petitioning that the reign of God over his kingdom would be recognized and embraced and obeyed on earth in the same way that it exists in heaven. And so we're asking God to set up his rule over the reign of all humanity and relieve us of Satan's grasp on our life. So your kingdom come is a prayer for the final kingdom where under his rule, our evil spirits will become pure, our deceit will be gone, and our shame will be banished for all eternity. Now, there's an interesting story when we think about your kingdom come, and I was reflecting on a conversation I had with this young female one time. Actually, Michelle and I were talking to her, and she was a missionary who had been in India, and she's actually back in the States now, and we were talking about the song, the even so, you know, even so come, Jesus come, and she said, I'm not going to lie to you. I can't sing that song, and we were like, why is that? And she said, I don't know if I want Jesus' kingdom to come. And I said, how can you say that, you know? I mean, that's, that's the center of all our prayers, you know? We have all these pains and everything in this world. Jesus, come and end this. And, and, and she said, I don't want to. She said, because it hurts me to think that there's that many people out there that have never heard his name, that if he comes, then they're destined for hell. And it just really caught me back that here, we're sitting here praying for your kingdom to come. And here's someone who actually says, honestly, I can't pray that because I want to share the gospel with as many people as I can first before his kingdom comes. And so we think of this kingdom coming as a future-focused event, this glorious event when Christ comes. But what we don't really realize is that his kingdom exists here right now. It's as present-focused as it is future-focused. It's just not to its fullest extent. So we ask him to bring his kingdom but we ask him to bring his kingdom into us individually as well as the final reign of Christ. Because when he rules in our hearts and we're obedient to his commands, then his kingdom is reigning in our hearts, in our spirits. And then we redirect our will to his will. And that's to the point that we were making last week when, when Jordan was talking about Christ praying in the garden and he was saying, hey, I don't want this to be my cup. This is not the cup I want to drink of it. But he aligned his will with God's will because God reigned over his kingdom. So our desires do not pre become primary anymore. We seek to glorify the king that is, the king that is king over the kingdom that we are citizens of. The Bible tells us we are not citizens of this world if we're in God's kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. And so that is where the kingdom reigns presently as well. You know, John the Baptist even said in Matthew 3, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the kingdom is here. It's just not yet fully present. He rules in our hearts. He rules in our lives. And so his reign exists. So, but while we're under God's rule as Christians, we're still anxiously awaiting his return to the fullest. So in petitioning for his kingdom to come, we are petitioning really for mankind to acknowledge that, that God is the king of all kings and that the kingdom of the world that we live in will become the kingdom of Christ and of God. So the first two petitions that we have in our prayers, the first two petitions in the Lord's Prayer are God-focused. Your name be hallowed. 
your kingdom come. The focus here is on your. The very first focus of the Lord's prayer is on God. And that is where we start our prayers. But what's interesting here is that our personal needs are not forgotten in the Lord's prayer. Jesus now turns from the high and mighty down to the personal and the practical with our own petitions. So second, what we see here in verses 3 and 4 is petitions for our daily needs. So once we give petition or pray for God's glory, we bring our needs to him. But we have to be very conscious that we bring our needs and not our greeds. We bring our necessities and not our luxuries. We can pray for anything you want to pray for. We can pray for a million dollars, 10 million, 1 billion. You can pray for anything you want. But what we're trying to do, our focus is to align our needs with God's divine will. Because he will give us what we need according to his will. So we pray for our necessities and not our luxuries. So the very first thing we're taught is give us each day our daily bread. So a daily allotment of bread was a, uh, the basic nourishment for the people in the first century. They knew and understood that bread was for day-to-day survival. Plus, when we bring this up, we, we think again once about the Jewish history in the Exodus when God would rain down manna from heaven. And so even then, the people knew that when the bread came from heaven, that it was to meet their physical needs, but also show and display how the Lord was sustaining them or sustaining us in our dependence on him on a daily basis. But now here the word bread, it symbolizes really something bigger than just bread. It, it really encompasses everything that we need for our daily existence on earth. It's, it's our food, our water, our clothing, our shelter, our health. So what Jesus is telling us here is pray for our daily needs because God cares about eternity, but he cares about us day to day as well. I, I want to turn to Matthew 15, Matthew 15, starting at verse 32. This is a piece of scripture that if you ever talk to me much, I go to all the time because I love this passage. So Matthew 15, 32, it says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am willing to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. So Jesus' ministry here on earth was all about teaching the gospel message and sharing the gospel message and preaching the gospel message. But right here in Matthew 15, we see that he still had compassion on the daily needs of the people. He had been teaching them three days, and yet he was unwilling to send them away because he saw that they had no food and they had, well, it says they had nothing to eat and they were hungry. So he is a God that has compassion on our physical needs. And yet, so this, this daily bread is really going for our daily needs to sustain this life. But yet what's interesting here is there's also this great interpretation that really goes into our spiritual needs as well. So just as we need food and water to survive, we need to nourish our souls daily. We need to make sure that we aren't just pouring into our tanks when they're low, that we pour into our spirits and our souls daily with God's word. 
So this daily bread is essentially saying that we're praying for our, our physical needs, but we're praying for our spiritual needs on a daily basis as well. And I love John 6, where Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. And so he's telling that I am the one who provides physical needs, but also life needs as well. And John 6, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Think about Exodus, the bread from heaven. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, eats of this bread. That's that physical aspect that we, we, we envision. Eats of this bread. He will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see how he's really talking here. If you can just, you can just see it, he's aspect of, yeah, he's talking about eternity. And he's saying anybody who eats from him will have eternal life. But he's also understanding this coming down from heaven. It, it, repl- it uh, reflects our spirit or our physical needs as well. So this is the Savior that we glorify every day as one who's worried about our physical needs and our spiritual needs. And this word daily is just a, a, an amazing word because it really has two time periods built into one word. Two time periods built into one word. The Greek interpretation literally means the present day as well as the days that are coming. So this is present day focus, but it's future focus as well. It, it provides, it points to providing our physical needs on this day and future days while also replying to the future focus of our satisfaction of life in eternity. So Jesus is telling us to rely on him daily, to petition to him daily, to pray to him daily, and, and not when we just feel like we need somewhere else to go. This is something we do daily. Give us each day our daily bread refers to the physical and spiritual fruit uh, of God's kingdom that we can enjoy not only today, but in every day to come. So we are praying for him to give to us as he wills, and we humbly depend on him for substance every day both today and every day to come. So now Jesus turns and he says to pray, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So in these passages, you'll see sin and debts and indebtedness. This word is used interchangeably because when we sin against someone, then we are in debt to them. So when we sin against God, we put ourselves in debt to God. We incur this obligation because of our sin, and in turn, we owe him now payment. And this is the heart of the gospel message that we believe in, because we are indebted to God for our sins, and yet Jesus covered our debt with his blood on the cross. So while our sins and our debts are forgiven because of Christ's death, on that cross, in the shedding of his blood. But every day, we must confess our sins as a part of our daily prayers. We confess our sins to maintain our relationship with God. And so in doing so, we are basically acknowledging that we are sinners. Every day, when we wake up and our feet hit that floor, we are sinners and part of a sinning race, a fallen race. But yet what this is saying is that we're acknowledging ourselves as, savior, or as sinners in need of a Savior. And so we're bringing our sins to Him every day. And this is one of the most urgent 
spiritual needs that we have. Because Romans uh, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And that wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. So without this daily maintenance and confession of our sins, our souls become very hardened to the forgiveness that we have and the hardened to the forgiveness that we have and, and that we need from our Father. So we pray daily for forgiveness of our sins. But now there's a second part of that that Jesus puts in there, that not only are we forgiven, but we are to forgive others as well. Both aspects of this is essential to maintaining our souls. So Scripture expresses it specifically that a heart that asks for God's forgiveness must be a heart that has forgiven and continues to forgive others of their sins. And I'll put one other note on that. That continues to forgive ourselves for our sins. This is a cycle that must repeat every day. When you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 6, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So now let's not misconstrue this passage because many people will look at it and they'll think, oh, we're forgiven because we forgave. And if you look at it that way with that because, then it's basically essentially putting the keys of salvation right back in our hands. And that is not what this is saying. Forgiveness is not dependent on our actions because once again, then it makes us back in control of eternity. But this is a process of restoring ourselves and restoring our relationships when sins have been committed. And so not only um, have we sinned against God, but we've sinned against other people and people have sinned against us. So we must forgive as we've been forgiven. A forgiven heart will display the same mercy that's been bestowed upon us by our Savior. So it's not upon our work or our action. This is not a contingent qualifier. What it's saying is that found within a heart that understands the forgiveness that we've been given will also be willing to forgive others. We show the same grace to people that God has shown to us. How can we truly grasp the magnitude of the forgiveness that we've received from God if we cannot forgive others in turn? You know, we sin against other people, but the sins that we have to other people and sins that people have placed on us or even the sins that we have with ourselves, they fail to compare to the sins that we've given to God every day and every moment of our life. Like I said, every day we put our feet on this ground, we're sinning against God, and yet He forgives us for that. So how do we hold on to something that's been done to us when we do in turn worse to God every day and he's forgiven us. That's what this is referring to. Now, I'm not going to come stand up here and tell you that this is easy. Oh yeah, forgiveness is easy. You should just do it. We walk right out and we amend everything. It's not. It's not easy and it's not something that comes naturally. But we have to be very careful because our words are forgiveness and we tell someone, I forgive you. Our words are very little because we can still hold bitterness and animosity inside of us. And so when we're talking about forgiveness, it's really an aspect of our heart and our soul. Do we really understand the forgiveness that we've been given? 
We can forgive others. You can forgive others. And better yet, you can forgive yourselves. You can forgive yourselves because of the amazing forgiveness that we have from God. So in this petition, we're seeking forgiveness, but we're also granting forgiveness to other people and ourselves for the health of our souls. This is where we really think of the health of the church and our family relationships and the, the, the church with the capital C, all believers. This is where we restore our relationships, not only between each other, but also with God. Now, lastly, Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Now, many people think that this tells us that God is the primary power behind our temptations, and this is completely false. Let's turn to James. We're going to turn to James 1, James chapter 1, starting at verse 13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So James is telling us here that God is not the one who tempts us. But rather, he goes on to explain, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So temptation comes from within inside of us from our own sinful nature. And it comes from this environment that we live in, from this external world, this fallen world that we live in. Temptation is everywhere. It's every part of our lives. It comes in one form or another. It is in every aspect of our day-to-day living. So this is not a petition to or a prayer to take temptation away. It's a prayer seeking strength not to yield to the temptations as they come. It's a, tempta- it's a petition not to be allowed to be led. Uh, it's, a, it's a petition not to be allowed to be leads to sin. Temptation is there when you yield to it, when you surrender to it, is what becomes sin. So here we're praying for protection from the attacks of Satan. We're t- praying for protection from the fallen world we're living in. We're praying for t- protection from our own sinful desires that are inside of us, we are saying that if we're left to our own devices, we will fail. We are not strong enough. We'll buckle under the pressure of enticement and temptation that's out there. So when we say, lead us not into temptation, we're asking that God not leave us exposed, that he delivers us from the attacks that will come. Because it's only through guidance and protection and only through Christ can we hope to withstand the temptation every day, each and every moment of every day. Now, there is a type of temptation that comes in the form of testing. So this word temptation can refer to a testing of of a character, such like um, testing the strength of steel, you know, making sure that it's strong enough to withstand pressure when it comes to it. So there are temptations that are good for us because as we push back against them, it shows our relationship with Christ and his care that we have. So while God will not tempt us to sin, there are tests that will come our way. We turn once again back to James 1 and we'll start at 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
Jumping down now to 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Like I said, Christ was tempted in the wilderness. He was not immune to the temptation, but he showed strength and resolve in the face of adversity. He was tempted with sin. He was tempted as a challenge of God's rule, but yet it was a test of a reliance on God's truth, and he was triumphant over that. So temptations, when we resist those temptations, they develop our moral character. And so we often will view temptations as these bad influence and these atrocities and egregious sins and harmful actions and and all this harmful conduct. But listen to me. Temptation is not the penalty of manhood. Temptation is the glory of Christianity. Because the more we resist the schemes of the devil, the more we flee from our own sinful passions, the more we are able to push back external forces, the more we show a reliance on God, the more we show the strength of the gospel message, and the more we show the existence of God's kingdom in our lives and in our church. That is where we have the lead us not in temptation. This is a prayer that God would not allow us to buckle under that pressure that we will have. And the best weapon that we have against temptation is the Word of God and our daily prayer lives. So as you noticed, our first sections were on the your. Your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Very God-focused. In this section part, the second part, we're talking about the us. In the R. Now note that it doesn't say my daily needs or pray for me or I or that first person. We're talking about us or or. This is a collective group that we're praying for. We are praying individually and each other at the same time. I'm praying for my daily needs. I'm praying for your daily needs. I'm praying for my health. I'm praying for your health. I'm praying for my forgiveness. I'm praying for your forgiveness. I'm praying for my temptations. I'm praying for your temptations. The reason why we have the us and the are in here is because it's the importance of not only focusing on ourselves in our prayer, but we focus for those other people around us as well. And that is where we are. Because how do we pray faithfully as an individual if we can't pray faithfully collective as a church and for other people? So we've gone through the Lord's Prayer, and this was not, it may have seemed like it, but it was not an exhaustive look at the Lord's Prayer. We merely just touched the surface on the Lord's Prayer, but if we went each week into each individual one, we could really dive deeper into this. And that's what's glorious about the Lord's Prayer, that the more that we study it and examine it, the more instructive we really find it. This is the model of prayer that we are given. It's rich in content and it's deep in meaning. And you know, if there's one takeaway that I want from this morning is that the Lord's Prayer is not something that we merely recite mindlessly from memorization. Do not treat the Lord's Prayer as a memorization. I want us to know it and understand it and follow it and understand the content. But most importantly, I want you to pray it daily. What does this look like in your own prayer life daily as this provides a framework for your daily prayers? Because the more you go into this, 
I guarantee you the more intimate relationship you'll have with your Father. So if you're struggling with prayer, or you are not sure where to start, or not sure how to navigate the waters, or it just seems awkward, start with Luke. Luke 11, 1, Lord's Prayer. And we will work through each individual content. Hallowed His name. Pray for the glory of God's name. Your kingdom come. Pray for God's kingdom, not only to come in for eternity, but even for everybody's day's life. Pray for your daily needs. Pray for the daily needs of everybody else that you know. Pray for forgiveness for your own sins. Pray for those restoration of relationships that you know are out there. Pray for yourselves. If you haven't forgiven yourself, pray for that. Forgive yourselves. And then pray that we not fall into temptation. So my prayer this morning is that we will understand the Lord's Prayer more fully and we'll understand the content and we won't just minimize it to something that is just a a memorization that we recite sometimes. So let me pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your words. We thank you for the Bible, Lord. We just pray that your name be hallowed, that you set your name apart, Lord. We pray that we can be a part of that, that we never misuse your name, Lord, that we never use your name in any way that changes the glory of it, Lord. We pray that we can hallow your name in our speech. We pray for your kingdom to come, Lord, to reign inside of our hearts. Lord, I pray for the daily needs of this congregation. Lord, I don't know all of what's on their thoughts, Lord, but they're all thinking of things right now, Lord. And so I just bless those and I lift those prayers to you. Lord, I pray for forgiveness and the forgiveness that you've given to us is amazing. Lord, and I just pray for maybe restoration of any relationships that are out there now that we can learn to forgive others, Lord. And we can learn to forgive ourselves first and foremost. Forgive ourselves as you have forgiven us, Lord. And I pray for the temptations. As soon as we walk out of there, Lord, we'll be tempted to sin in many different ways, Lord. I pray for your deliverance from that, Lord. I thank you for this time, Lord. We acknowledge your existence here with us this morning. Lord, we can feel it. We love it. We worship it. We praise it. Lord, we just are awesome that you're here and part of Crosswinds this morning, Lord. I pray for everybody here, and we just want to say that we love you and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that we are indebted to you no more. In the Lord's name, amen.